You're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Julian Uggen is a fellow Chamorro, a native of the island of Guam, what used to be known as Guahan. Uggen comes from a place where he's using his skills as a writer and a lawyer to tackle issues of environmental justice tangled in a complicated political history. He's the author of No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies and spoke at the University of Hawaii Better Tomorrow speaker series earlier this month. He vividly remembers the day that sent him on a path as a human rights advocate. Basically, in 2005, the U.S. federal government came out with an announcement that it had sort of unilaterally decided to heavily militarize my homeland, which is Guam, as you know, our, our homeland. And there was no meaningful consultation. There's no consultation whatsoever, actually. And so we had constantly, in 2005, 2006, in that one-year window, we just kept hearing announcement after announcement. You know, these announcements that were really sort of thrown to us, flung at us from on high, you know, from the decision maker, those in power. And I realized this is why I need to go to law school. This precise reason, you know, I was tired of being talked out of the room by lawyers. I was tired of sort of the U.S. federal government and other sort of you could say nefarious actors who were really like, you know, private corporations who are really, you know, benefiting from militarization, like the military buildup of Guam, these these projects. Um, I was like, they had been weaponizing the law, you know, and doing it in such a way for, I'll just give you a really concrete example. The, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense spent years creating this environmental impact assessment, like millions of dollars, tons of uh, contracted experts. And then they gave the community of Guam, my people, 45 days to respond. Then they had, you know, you know, the grace to extend it to a 90-day uh, comment period. But it's, it was insane. The scale of the military buildup of Guam then planned was staggering, and it still is. And so I really wanted to go to law school precisely because I wanted to do the opposite thing with law. I wanted to embark on a very different kind of project, which is, you know, using language and the language of the law to clarify my intent, not to cloud it, you know, and to, to sort of deploy it on behalf of vulnerable communities like my own, the indigenous Chamorro people of Guam. Um, and I guess you could say um, the, my work as a writer is similar, if not the same in some ways. It's still in fundamentally about interrogating language, its use what types of actors are using language in what type of ways, you know? So the way our community on the ground, our activists are using language is very, very different from the way, for example, various U.S. federal agencies that are trying to effectuate, effectively give waivers to the U.S. military to imperil a whole, a whole host of life, both on land and at sea. So that project, I've been involved in that project for a lot longer. You know, Jen, that is just, my my work as a writer, but to answer your first question about Guam, Guam is just an incredibly beautiful place, as you know. It's roughly 30 miles long. It's the ancestral homeland of the Ch indigenous Chamorro people. We've been there for f well over 3,000 years. Um, we have a matrilineal society. We have a very elaborate system of cultural values, the center of which I would argue is the ethos of reciprocity. We actually have more words for reciprocity than any other word in our language, which gives some indication about the kinds of values you know we have as, as a people. And so we've thrived in this particular place for thousands of years, and that place is in danger. It's in danger right now today as I speak. Just so you know, five minutes before heading over here, I was sent a press release. You know, there's an announcement that the U.S. military is going to perform its very first, its inaugural set of live fire training activities next week. So over a firing range that it built in an area that's quite sacred to my people, to our people, that is host to several endemic endangered species. And they destroyed roughly a thousand acres of pristine limestone forest to do it. And this military uh, firing range is going to now cut off access because the U.S. military created an additional buffer zone that it, it is calling a surface danger zone. And it's going to deny fishermen for so many days out of the year to be able to access a critical fishing area, too. So it is just sort of a panoply 
of injustices that are sort of being, you know, trained on my people, whether, you know, it's indigenous medicine women like the Zoomtis who gather certain plants that are growing around that firing range or fishermen who are trying to make a living and feed their family. So this is, and as a human rights lawyer in particular, I just find that the current military buildup, the firing range in particular, is basically a violation of a whole wide range of our fundamental human rights. It's been a year since you published a book about a native species. Share with our listeners about sure. that particular butterfly. Sure. Actually, that butterfly is one of the many endemic endangered species whose critical habitat is now being endangered by that exact same firing range. So the butterfly in question is the Mariana eight-spot butterfly. She's native to Guam. She is an emphalid butterfly, so she's orange and black, essentially, in color. Um, and she's incredibly resilient. You know, I like to say that so many people who are so much more familiar with the monarch butterfly were such big fans, aside from the beauty, just of the resilience. I think the monarch butterfly has to go through five larval instars to really sort of step into her power and become a full-fledged butterfly. But our Mariana Acepaw butterfly, in fact, goes through six larval instars. So I think she's like a testament, you know, to the importance of respecting strength as opposed to power. And that's why, to me, she's such an emblematic figure for our movement in Guam. I mean, we have survived, like her or my people, Chamorro people have survived hundreds of years of uninterrupted colonization the harms of which are still ongoing and really concretely being felt today. And now that sort of enduring colonial enterprise is being exacerbated by a very hyper-aggressive round of militarization. And so, you know, when you wrote this book and you were a, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize Award, what did that mean to you? From a very personal perspective, you know, the book was um, most meaningful because I saw that it really brought so many people together. Like when I went on a national book tour last year, this time last year, in fact, I had been going to New York, San Francisco, Seattle, here too. But no matter where I went, I saw large groups of particularly young Chamorro people. Um, young Chamorro members of the diaspora, so-called, because they don't live at home, right? They feel a certain loss and a certain mahaling, like a deep longing to be with each other. And I saw, like, for example, several WhatsApp groups created. I watched firsthand all these, like, young Chamorros who even worked as close as one New York City block from each other and didn't even know each other. They didn't know of each other's existence. So I saw this bring people together in just an, in really beautiful ways. And I saw it build community. And that's what I think the most we could ever ask from a book is to build community. You know, that is, it's, you know, deeply loving, you know, and that is like all we can really do, especially in the times we're living in now. These are, you know, very trying times. And so people, we need each other. And this book helped do that. Another thing I'll say is I thought it was really interesting. Maybe perhaps arguably the most special aspect of it is the book is primarily about grief. In the book, I'm processing a whole host of loss, including, you know, the loss of my father from pancreatic cancer when I was nine years old. So the book really uses grief, but it tries to do it in a much more indigenous way where it's not grief that has an isolating effect, you know, which is a very individualistic kind of like walling off, you know, of oneself from others and people from each other. Instead, this is like, you know, Angela Davis, she once said, walls turn sideways are bridges. Grief is like that. So I'm like, I try to turn grief on its side and allow people to like, it almost functions like a bridge. And like through our grief, we can find each other again. You know, it and, means a lot to me. And, and so the fact that you have been able to build community through this book, through the young Chamorros that are transplanted, mm -hmm. you know, across the, the, the continent. You just learned of this development, you know, and I know there had been some challenges to this buildup. Yeah, definitely. There's been a number of challenges, legal and otherwise. I mean, we even had allies here like Earth Justice file lawsuits on our behalf. I have filed lawsuits, you know, on behalf of the people with my firm. We were successful in some. For example, we successfully sued Fish and Wildlife to protect uh, critical habitat for a number of species. But of course, it's not enough, you know, and the U.S. federal courts suffer from this very particular kind of element, if you will. They allow, you know, U.S. federal courts tend to allow certain 
prudential doctrines like the political question doctrine, which functions to essentially remove the possibility of judicial review from cases that the judicial branch feel are more that feel that the Constitution textually commits to the coordinate political branches. So that's a problem, right? So essentially, as long as the U.S.'s military is the actor and it claims national security and it claims to need a firing range, you know, environmental laws be damned is essentially the point. So instead of just like sort of bringing a simple case, you know, under the Endangered Species Act or under the National Environmental Policy Act, all of these federal environmental laws that were passed to protect the exact species that are in danger now, you know, you see, you know, fish and wildlife or NOAA coming out and sort of effectively giving waivers, you know, sort of excusing um, the U.S. military's performance or compliance with these obligations, you know, and it's, it's just the state of affairs that we're in. in. In some ways, it's a very accurate state or accurate reflection of the fact that the U.S. military is still uh, proceeding in ways that are really ecologically destructive, and they're getting the legal license to do so. Do you feel like they are treating our native species as second-class species? <laughs> I mean, Guam is a territory. It's not a state. And you would like to think that those laws apply evenly. At the heart of all of this is a glaring denial of the fundamental right of self-determination for the people of Guam. We are still recognized by the United Nations as a non-self-governing territory, which is a fancy way of saying colony. So we are formally slated for some future act of decolonization at which we will be able to choose one of three internationally recognized political status options, which includes a right to outright independence. So yes, we have all of these rights under international law, but the U.S. is sort of flagrantly violating those rights. You know, and it is sad. I mean, and, and that's just from an international perspective. Under U.S. law, Guam remains an unincorporated territory, as you say. What that means is, you know, it means many things. But actually, it, what it really means, um, if you want to be simple about it, it just gives U.S. Con Congress sort of carte blanche, um, pl so-called plenary power, to do whatever it want, wishes with the territories, including act in ways that are disparate, unfair, unequal, inequitable, unjust. And all of that sort of has constitutional blessing because the enduring legacy of the insular cases, which is, right, the turn of the century um, sort of legal fiction that was devised by the U.S. Supreme Court to basically allow the U.S. to exercise this sort of unfettered power over the overseas colonial possessions it took over from Spain at the conclusion of the Spanish-American War without, in turn, conferring rights upon the citizens, the native inhabitants of those territories. So, of course, over history, we have incremental, we've gained certain rights incrementally and certain constitutional provisions apply incrementally, but it's always subject to complete defeasance by Congress. What yep. Congress gives, it can take away. And it is still considered by many in the military to be a outpost. Oh, yes. I mean, people, yeah, definitely. Military uses language like that to almost disappear all the people living there. That was a September 20th conversation we had with Julian Uggen, writer and lawyer. He's currently writing a book based on an essay he wrote about climate justice, one that propelled him onto the global stage as a Pulitzer finalist. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect and manage Oahu's water resources since 1929 for fresh water now and for future generations. Boardofwatersupply.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Vasavi Kumar, author of Say It Out Loud. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about using the power of your voice to reframe negative self-talk. Sunday at 11. Brandy Nalani McDougal is the 2023 Hawaii State Poet Laureate. McDougal is from Maui and the first woman selected for the two-year term. Her recent book, Aina Hanau Birthland, is inspired by her daughters. The conversation Stephanie Hahn sat down with McDougal to talk about using poetry to heal. My overall vision is actually to put 
poetry out there as a space of healing and as a as a strategy for healing and working through trauma and also working with Aina or being a part of land and water, being outside, reconnecting with land and water, alongside connecting with our own stories and poetry, how both of those together are so healing for all of us. And in this time and space where so many of us are are in need of healing, um, it's really something that's connected to my own personal um, history. Um, I feel that poetry has saved my life in many ways. And I think it could really make a huge difference for many other people, especially coming out of this intense time of isolation and of fear and confusion that COVID brought, but also the ways in which it really exacerbated folks who are already perhaps vulnerable to various um, personal family and, and, and childhood traumas of their own. What is it about poetry that can metaphorically or literally save a life? Yes, thank you for that question. Well, I can speak from my own personal experience that what made a difference for me was being able to confront that trauma, um, childhood trauma head on, and thinking about the stories that I would often tell myself already in my head about it, but to be able to actually get it out of your head, <laughs> get, get it out in maybe perhaps images that are haunting you or memories that are coming back that reinflict that trauma um, and, and could lead to depression or, or anger or all sorts of other things that continue to kind of impact your life. And I'm speaking of, in particular, childhood trauma that, and the ways it can continue to impact your life well into adulthood. Have, having the ability to be able to articulate those stories or even just to write down those memories or those images that are haunting you, it, there's such a relief that comes with that. Actually kind of facing and confronting it rather than suppressing it. As many of us feel in our own lives, just suppressing trauma doesn't mean it goes away. Right. It, it, there are ways in which it kind of crops up and, and could lead to destructive behavior or self-destructive behavior or other sorts of issues that end up kind of inflicting more trauma on yourself or perhaps even others. So poetry becomes a way to kind of hold that trauma outside of you and for you to be able to then confront it and work through it in a healthy way. So how does a person learn how to be honest on the page? This is a question a lot of writers have. To me, this is the mark of the difference between a trained good writer and a great writer, is how the writer is vulnerable on the page. And so how does one learn that? Oh, Can that be taught? That's such a great question. Thank you for that. I think it can be taught, but there is certainly a kind of evolution that needs to take place, uh, a kind of growth um, that you need to undergo as a writer. And I think it can be accelerated growth <laughs> to a certain extent if you're willing to be brave and face it. So often when we're, when we're starting to write, there's almost a fear of being honest, a fear of being vulnerable, because writing can be a space of trauma in and of itself, right? There are ways in which we might have experienced being told we aren't good writers or um, being made fun of for maybe taking a risk, even telling um, the truth about something early on in our lives. So being able to be vulnerable in that space or through that medium can feel like a huge risk. And in that sense, you might want to try to hide it. One of the many lessons I learned from one of my mentors, Garrett Hongo, was that there are ways in which writing writing ends up revealing your truth without you even knowing it, <laughs> without you even intending it sometimes. Yes. There's ways in which it's a medium that we don't always have complete control over. Parts of ourselves, even like the darkest parts of ourselves, might even come out in our writing without our uh, wanting it to. You kind of understand that at a certain point, 
and you kind of feel, well, if that's going to happen anyway, I need to be able to be brave and just face it head on. I need to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling right now, or this is the truth that's come from that, even if it hurts, you know, or even if it perhaps might even hurt other people, you know, to a certain degree. But perhaps it's a truth that needs to be stated nevertheless, right? Right. Very true. So what do you see as the qualities of poetry in the oceanic region? How is the poetry being shaped by the poetry of the people of the Pacific? In the 21st century, whoever governs the Pacific is really going to be controlling the global order. Here we are. So what are the contributions that you feel the people of the Pacific are making? What are the special qualities? There is a poet in every Pacific Islander household <laughs> um, throughout the Pacific. I, I don't think that's not an overstatement at all. In fact, there might be more than one. And often it comes about because of our connection to uh, oratory. All of us have grown up with an uncle who gives just amazing poetic prayers, you know, to bless the food. Um, That was my, that was actually my grandfather who I have in mind for that. Um, Or we might grow up with folks who are musicians and have, um, you know, written songs like my, my father. It's very common for many of our many of our elders to be excellent at storytelling and, and to be raised with the with legends and stories at different mo'olelo, mo'olelo connected to aina especially. Um, so all of that is very rich and very strong in our culture and I'm really proud that that continues to be the case and so we're a very literary people even if we have not been able to publish that literature in the same way that other groups have. And I would argue that a lot of that also comes from colonial silencing that we've experienced uh, in Hawaii, in particular, the uh, silencing of Olalo Hawaii, but also in the ways in which our work struggled for a long time to even be published. There was a lot of censorship of, of Hawaiian viewpoints dating from the Hawaiian Kingdom era um, as American colonial encroachment began. This continues to be a struggle even if there are certain ways in which that's changing. What's been wonderful to see within the Pacific are a lot of folks actually taking on projects to make sure that our communities are more visible through um, literature. So uh, starting presses, for example, um, or creating venues or events that make sure that our poets and artists are are very um, visible and are front and center for um, any kind of issue that needs that kind of distillation and synthesis, which I would argue all of our issues do. (laughs) Right, right. Do you cross genres with your writings? Do you write lyrics? Do you come from a family that practiced hula? How did you come to this form? There's no one else who was a poet, <laughs> I should say, right. or who would have called themselves a poet in my family. And in fact, to some degree, there was a lot of fear around my choosing to take that route. Um, I had a lot of family members that were like, why are you studying poetry? What are you going to do with that? You know, there You're was a lot of concern. Money, right? Yeah. And, and to some degree, I mean, they're, they're kind of right. I mean, poetry <laughs> does tend to be impoverished financially <laughs> for many of us there but we like as poets we like to say that keeps our art pure you know <laughs> and and uncorrupted <laughs> yeah so without that unfortunately i i don't have that kind of music ability i would love to be able to play an instrument where then i could feel like i could create a song i just i don't know how to do it <laughs> uh, i would love to take a um, a songwriting class I took hula lessons when, as a as a kid, 
I'm not super skilled at that either, <laughs> even though I tried. Um, but I, you know, I have so much aloha for people who, um, you know, have that talent in them. I've also taken classes on on oli, and that's also something that I would like to kind of evolve further on. A lot of backgrounds or, or maybe attempts at, at various related arts, but poetry was what ended up sticking with me. And, and perhaps that has to do with, from a young age, I was I was often the, the kid that ended up being kind of surrounded by adults who would tell stories around me and then would sometimes even tell stories to me and some of which you know I felt so sophisticated to hear because I could tell maybe these weren't stories a child should hear but I became kind of a receptacle for these stories and I could feel their power. Can you uh, read us a poem? Your choice. Um, So this poem is called Water Remembers. Waikiki was once a fertile marshland, ahupua'a, mountain water gushing from the valleys of Makiki, Manoa, Palolo, Wailai, and Wailupe to meet ocean water. Seeing such wealth, Kanaka planted hundreds of fields of kalo, uwala, ulu, and yuka, built fish ponds in the muliwai. Waikiki fed O'ahu people for generations so easily that its ocean raised surfers, hailed the highest of ali'i to its shores. Waikiki is now a miasma of concrete and asphalt, its waters drained into a canal dividing tourist from resident. The mountain springs and waterfalls trickling where they are allowed to flow and left stagnant elsewhere, pollulate with staphylococcus. In the uplands, the fields have long been dismantled, their rock terraces and heiau looted to build the walls of multi-million dollar houses with panoramic diamond head and or ocean views. Closer to the ocean, hotels fester like pustules, the sand stolen from other aina to manufacture the beaches, seawalls maintained to keep the sand in, so suntan-oiled tourists can laze on what never was, what never should have been. No one is fed plants and fish from this aina now. Its land value has grown so that nothing but money can be grown, its waters unpotable, polluted. Each year, as heavy rainfalls flood the valleys, spill over gulches, slide the foundations of overpriced houses, invade sewage pipes and said brown water runoff to the ocean, the king tides roll in, higher in their warming, lingering longer, and breaking through sandbags and barricades, eroding the resorts. This is not the end of civilization, but a return to one. Only the water insisting on what it should always have, spreading its liniment over infected wounds. Only the water rising above us, reteaching us wealth and remembering its name. Beautiful and powerful. Mahalo. Brandy Nalani McDougall is Hawaii's second poet laureate. She spoke with HPR Stephanie Hahn about her creative writing process and belief in sharing poetry. This interview originally aired on March 7th. is the name of a new novel that tells of a coming-of-age story of a young woman aspiring to compete in the Merry Monarch's Miss Aloha Hula competition. It explores the relationship Hawaiians have with the cultural art form and how one finds identity within the context of a family and its history. It's the first book published by Jasmine Iolani Hakes. She grew up in the Keokaha area in Hilo. She also spent many years with Halau Okekuhi and put herself through college as a professional luau dancer. The conversation is Russell Subiano talked to Hakes about what inspired her to write the book. In your book, you really explore how bloodlines and relationships impact identity. Is that something that you wrestled with or that fascinated you growing up? Uh, both, very much so. I think 
you know, I was born at home. And so the running joke was that if I hadn't been, you know, my mom never would have believed that I was hers because I'm so fair and I have these blue eyes and I was, it looked so different from the rest of the family. And so growing up, I was very self-conscious of that. And also add that to my middle name and me being very aware of the responsibility of that name and being given that name of how do I reconcile these two things? Because in my mind, I don't look like what I think I should be in order to fulfill this responsibility in some way, right? As a hula dancer or as someone who who does something as, as a gift to this culture and to where I'm from. And so I wrestled with that a lot because I, I just felt like, is my white skin something that means I don't, I'm not from here. And I think also growing up in the eighties and nineties, where you had leading up to the apology bill, all those protests. Right. And so it was like the first time you drive down the street and it was like, how let's go home. And I'm like, do they mean me? And like, if they do, then where am I going to go? I've never, you know, and, and I used to ask my mom, like, well, what am I? Cause that's our capital, right? That's, that's how we, we communicate. And, and she would say you're cosmopolitan. And she was said that since when I was a kid of like, you're, you're a citizen of the world. And I was like, no, ma, that's not what I like. That's not helpful. You know, yeah. I need something more tangible than that. What am I? And, and she would say, well, you're, you're all these different things. And my grandpa would say, you know, you're Puerto Rican and Filipino and Puerto, all those people that came to Hawaii to work sugarcane and all those things. But also, you know, like he, he would say, we are Hawaiian. It's just not on our birth certificate. And I thought, well, I, so I can't claim any of those things if they're not on my birth certificate. And in Hawaii, that that's such a big deal. And I knew it was, but I didn't ever want to ask, what am I if I don't have those things on there? You know, and I think that really, really stuck with me of where, you know, where you belong, if it's not clear, if you don't have that birth certificate to say, I'm from France and, and I'm French and, and easy. And then you go from there as far as developing your individual person. And so it really, really bothered me for a long time of, of that. And I think the book was a way for me to finally have the courage to explore that, that fear and that vulnerability. But what it turned into ultimately was more of a like, well, if I don't have that on my birth certificate, what is my cultural responsibility to where I'm from, to my home and to my children, right? I have one child that has it on her birth certificate and one that doesn't. So is their cultural responsibility and their cultural inheritance different? And, and I don't know, I only have questions, but I think it was a way, a very vulnerable way, but also a, a way to ask the questions that I know there's not really clear answers to. And everybody, everybody might say something different about it. You know, there's no book to refer to, just to look that question up. Right. Like, oh, okay, easy, you know. <laughs> right. And there's no established guidelines either. I feel like maybe sometime in the future, maybe there should be some Hawaiian leaders and, and maybe some fair-skinned Hawaiians that kind of talk about that. And how do we change our mindset so that yeah. we're not just looking at everybody's color of their skin all the time? And I think, yeah, I mean, and and so it was really super scary because, I mean, it's something we all have feelings about, mm -hmm. right? And so I was like, well, I'm just putting myself out there, you know, in front of this firing squad because it is something that is very relevant to current day politics and there's so many implications to any way you look at it right but I also feel like what I had to do was I had to understand how we got here and so I was being given from my aunties like like old journals where you know people they would like missionaries or people that would come over to Hawaii they they draw this is what a Hawaiian looks like this is what the nose looks like this is how dark their skin is and then the introduced blood quantum thing. And we've so, not just in Hawaii, but around the world, we've so internalized that kind of thinking of we don't even define ourselves. We're just going off of this definition that's been given to us. And it's not necessarily just my problem. It's also like my problem for one of my best friends who inherited her place in line for Hawaiian homelands, finally gets it, spends all her resources and attention trying to build the house and meet you know, keep the lease and her kids don't have enough quantum to inherit it. And so then what, you know, and so we just keep accepting this, this definition that's been given. And so again, I don't, I don't have any like, well, here's what we should do going forward, how to fix it. But it was, it was good, I think, for me to understand where my angst, my personal angst 
about what's on my birth certificate and what isn't where that came from, you know, yeah. and, and it is heartbreaking. And what I didn't expect was to hear from so many people in America that have reached out to me that say, I look haole. And I'm so, I've always been so self-conscious to say I'm Hawaiian, even if it's on my birth certificate, because I wasn't born there. And so who, who, who is Hawaiian enough? You know, is that just a small, small few? And if so, then how do we help them keep this culture alive if we have no responsibility? You know, so I, I just had all these like, well, I care and and this is my home. And so how, and I see all like my family and my community and you must see this too. Like now so many people are finding ways, right? To like make it a better place and make it more community yeah. and start businesses and do all these things. And so I guess it, this was my attempt to contribute to that a little bit, to that like, well, let's move forward. And how do we do that is maybe just understanding a little bit of how, what mess got us here. There's a lot of context in your novel as well. You include a lot of accounts of Hawaiian history. There's like this new wave of, of books from local authors coming out that are telling these stories that are rooted in real life experiences and also interweave Hawaiian history. What was your decision behind including Hawaiian history in your novel? For me, I didn't want to, I, I'm not a historian. And if I had, if I had told myself I was setting out to do what Hula eventually became, I would have laughed it off because I felt so unqualified to write something like that with that kind of scope. But when I wrote the simple story of this Nopaka family and their, their tensions and what they were struggling to reconcile and what the differences were between perspective of generations, I would, didn't have the liberty to assume a mainstream reader or even somebody from Hawaii would fully understand the history or the context of what they're fighting about. You know, like you can talk about certain people's and, and you don't have to explain why they're angry or disenfranchised. But I think for a lot of people in Hawaii, you do. Most people around the world, at least people that I, I've met and, and come across, cross paths with, you know, throughout my travels and stuff, they don't have any concept of anything. And, and I don't blame them. When I was growing up, I was in school anyway, in public school, I learned only the year Hawaii became a state. We covered it in one day, in one sentence, and that's it. You know, and so I felt like I wanted to get into it. I wanted to not have to hold back all the nuance and complications and stuff like that. And in order to do that, I had to build it out. Over the last few years, we've seen more and more stories about Hawaii by Hawaiians and the people who live here that share a starkly different reality than those on the outside have been brought up to believe. We've seen it in movies. We've seen it in television and in books. What would you like readers to take away from your novel? I think primarily the key thing that a reader, a mainstream reader, somebody outside of Hawaii could take away from this is the simple paradigm shift of Hawaii is not a destination. It's a place. And it doesn't mean you don't go there, but when you're visiting a place, you read up about it. You go with kind of open eyes. You want to visit things and you kind of walk at least in general, I, I feel like you'd walk with a slightly softer step and be aware of a culture and be in awe of it and want to learn about it. And people don't do that when you're going to a destination, right? You think, I'm going to relax, I'm going to read this book, and, and I'm going to get a tan. And that's your benchmarks for, for what you want out of Hawaii. And so if you read this and you just come away with going, wow, I'm going to a place versus a destination, I think that's a huge, small thing. Thanks so much for your time, Jasmine. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was debut author Jasmine Iulani Hakes talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. This interview first aired on July 12th. Her first novel, Hula, is available at all major outlets.
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii International Film Festival, presented by Hale Kulani, with films from around the world, beginning October 12th on Oahu and October 26th on neighbor islands. Passes at HIFF.org. Hawaii Public Radio's corporate relations team is growing, and we're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Read more about the position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Author Kaylin George's favorite bedtime stories were the ones her mom told her about growing up on Molokai. George was born in Portland and growing up in various cities found comfort from hearing the familiar stories about her mom's lively adventures woven together with island lore of the White Lady and the Night Marchers. The Kid Time Tales became the launching pad for her children's book, Aloha Everything. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with George to talk about the whimsical book expanding Asian American Pacific Islander representation in children's literature. My mother was born on Molokai, and I was born away from the islands, but I always loved the stories that my mom would tell me when I was growing up. And I think when I was young, I may have terrorized my parents a little bit just because I never wanted to go to bed because I was always begging them for another bedtime story. (laughs) And my parents, you know, they gave me Humpty Dumpty, they gave me Cinderella, and I loved those stories, but my favorite stories were the ones my mom would tell me about how her her and her siblings and her cousins would, you know, run around on the island, how they would catch glimpses of the white lady or they would run away from the night marchers. And those were the stories that I just most vibrantly remember from my childhood and they were always hugely inspirational to me and I just really I think from a young age knew that I wanted to become a storyteller because of those stories my mom would tell me and I did I ended up growing up to become a screenwriter and a director but I always had somewhere in my heart that I would love to create children's books from the stories that my mom gave me because from the time that I was really young I recognized that those stories didn't exist or didn't seem to exist very frequently in the books on my bookshelves of classrooms or of libraries. And when I was a bit older, in 2019, I saw that the CCBC, the Cooperative Children's Book Center, released a report that actually recognized for the first time for them what representation was like for Pacific Islanders in children's literature. And it revealed that Pacific Islander is the least represented group that they recognize. And every year since 2019 has been less than 0.05%. So I think I have always been in love with storytelling, but I knew that I wanted to write down some of the stories that originally inspired me. And so that was in a lot of ways kind of the creation or the inspiration for what Aloha Everything would become. And I'm really, really grateful for that experience and for that journey and for everything that my family did to make it possible. The writing Mm -hmm. is one part for children, also the imagery. Tell me about your illustrator and that collaboration. I knew from the beginning that the illustrations were going to be such a huge part of Aloha Everything, and it was going to be essential that we be visualizing not only tonally, but also thematically the story that I was trying to tell and the through line that I was trying to create. And so in the very beginning, I went on a very intensive search. I looked everywhere that I could think of to try to find the perfect illustrator for Aloha Everything and looked at art auctions. I looked at art galleries. I looked at everything I could find online. I called universities and asked if they had talented alumni who graduated with art degrees. I looked everywhere that I could think of and I finally came across a piece by May Waite and as soon as I saw it I was like wow 
this is incredible and it has exactly the feeling that would bring so much life and so much joy to the book. She currently works as a resident artisan for Louis Vuitton and she's done illustrations for the Washington Post. We've been creating this book for over three years now. It's really important that the person that you're working with also be someone that collaborates well with you, someone that partners well with you. So out of those three years, we spent about the first year and a half in what I would consider primarily a research phase. So that was when I was beginning to have conversations, beginning to ask questions. I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of researching. I was lucky that so many incredibly kind people have been so helpful helping us to shape the story. We've had conversations with the Hula Preservation Society. We've had conversations with cultural advisors, with Kumu Hula and you know asking questions and, and I think even the really special part of the process for me was having conversations with my own family because I actually through this journey learned so much about my own family about my own heritage and ancestry and myself that I had never known before which was so so special and also during that time period I was working with May to provide her with the research that she would need in order to create the illustrations we had very intensive kind of back and forth notes and communications we would create shared documents together where we would compile information that we would later use for the illustrations there is a scene where you see the creation of kappa and so we created you know a lot of research and a lot of reference documents talking what kappa design looked like, what it represented, stories about kappa design, how the process worked, what the tools and instruments looked like, so that when it came time for May to depict these illustrations that they were as truthful as they could be while also fitting within the universe of Aloha Everything, which is a whimsical children's story that brings every aspect into the imagination of a child. When you open Aloha Everything, you feel like you're stepping into the imagination of a child, which was always super important to us, but we also wanted there to be that truthfulness. So that's like a great example. We also have pages that have voyaging, you know, depictions of the canoeing. We have many pages that have depictions of native and endemic plants and animals. So that first year and a half was really a lot of research. It was a lot of me and May talking. It was May doing sketches and we really didn't nail anything down for a period of time as we just wanted to allow the ideas to flow and to get ourselves into a position where we were freely and openly communicating with each other and putting everything out there, really putting everything out there so that one day we would be ready to make everything as good as we could. Mm. So on social media, see that you've been collaborating with Hawaii Literacy. How did this relationship start? We reach out to them. My mom actually grew up with the bookmobile. And so my mom grew up seeing how big of a difference it can make to children on the islands given through the bookmobile access to books that they can take home. Studies show that children that read at home are more likely to do more reading overall and in their lives if they have access to books at home. So they do really incredible things to provide access and opportunities to kids on the islands. So I knew that that was an organization that we felt a lot of synergy with. And so we reached out to them and we asked them if it would be possible to connect with them to do readings or to do activities with kids. And they were incredible and super helpful and provided us with not only those opportunities, but also with a lot of feedback and stuff that helped us to make the project even better. And growing up on Molokai, was your mom, was she the rascal? <laughs> yes. So there was five siblings and my mom was the oldest and I'm also the oldest. So I <laughs> definitely connect with that. And from the stories, I think they were all rascals. <laughs> but when I see pictures of my mom, I'm really lucky that I have really incredible photographs of my mom growing up in the 70s. And the protagonist of Aloha Everything is in a lot of ways shaped by those images actually because we see my mom kind of she has a mischievous look on her face <laughs> in a lot of the pictures and we wanted the character to feel confident to feel adventurous to feel like a very empowered young girl character and she was in a way partially shaped by those vintage photographs of my mom from the 70s and yeah, I think I think my mom was probably a little bit of a rascal, but it sounds like her siblings might have been even more of rascals. So it balances out, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe just for our listeners, because, you know, we're hearing all about this book. Do you mind reading a couple passages for us to get a feel oh, for sure. the writing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me go ahead and read something. So Aloha Everything. 
In the hush of the night, with the moon still aglow, a small baby was born, where the koa trees grow, where lehua blooms bright, where the mo'o give chase, where the ocean sprays kiss, meets the sky's close embrace. With her curls kappa soft, breath like breadfruit so sweet, this dear child evermore shared the island's heartbeat. And with time how she grew both in mind and in heart, like the honu so swift, like the he'e so smart. Yes, her spirit was fierce, every tide she would brave, with kakuina eyes keen to follow each wave. She was special indeed, but the island still knew there was much to be learned by that little girl too. While the melee rang proud, while the pahu drums rolled, men and women stepped forth, watched their stories unfold. They breathed life to the tales with each step and each song, generations of lore that the hula kept strong. And the girl she beheld, a tradition so true, from the hula she learned, from the hula she grew. So that's the first couple of pages. And how many pages in the book? There's 48 total pages if you include, like, the pronunciation guide and the glossary. And your protagonist, what is her name? Ano. Yeah, so in the book itself, she actually isn't named. Every time that we see her, she's referred to as the girl or the child, but that's just what May and I call her. That was Kaylin George with HPR's Lillian Song. George's new cakey book, Aloha Everything, is a reminder to share love, respect, and appreciation of the Aloha spirit. The story is brought to life with hand-painted illustrations by Mae White. Well, that does it for today's special showcase of our fall reads. What titles make up your reading list? Let us know. Call our talkback line. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard theme uh, written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.